Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Christine Maruzzi, and I'm one of the authors of From Colonial to Modern, Transnational Girlhood in Canadian, Australian, and New Zealand Children's Literature, 1840 to 1940. And I'm here with one of my co-authors, Dr. Michelle Smith, and we're going to have a discussion about our book as part of the SHCY featured book series. The date today is August 27th, and Michelle and I are both located in Melbourne, where we're currently under uh, stage four lockdown. Um, And so we're doing this virtually and hoping that the technology works in our favor. So Michelle, do you wanna tell us what our book is about? Yes, and this is a dilemma, isn't it? Because it's a it's a couple of years since we finished um, writing now, isn't it? But the book was with us for such a long time. And I think what it is about evolved from when we first thought of this kind of project, um, maybe around 2009. Um, but effectively, what the book became about is, I think, the circulation of girls' print culture across the British Empire and how it put forward a kind of standardized um, model of girlhood um, that sort of embodied particular ideals. And I think the end product is a little different to what we first imagined, um, where we we felt that um, the situations of Canada, Australia and New Zealand would would be so unique and that that we'd discover all of this kind of quite nationally based ideals of femininity. Instead, um, we we found that this, the way the print was circulating was uh, supporting more of a unified model of girlhood. So I don't know, that's my um, nutshell summary. What do you think, Chris? (laughs) What did we do in this book? Indeed, no, I thought I think that's a really excellent summary. And and I think you're right. And it was it's interesting as you're as you're speaking to that that in the beginning we really did think that there would be really significant uh differences between the models of girlhood. And but but one of the things that ended up informing sort of our shift in our argument and and kind of the trajectory of the research was the was was getting a better understanding of how print culture for girls was was traveling through the through the British Empire because I think certainly I expected that there would be more national literature that that was present in each of the countries so that the Canadians were writing and publishing books for girls or content for girls and so were the Australians and so that each of them would sort of have this kind of almost um, popular idea about girlhood that would then emerge through those national literatures and but what we discovered was that much of that print culture for children originated in England and was kind of was was then being spread throughout the empire so there was more of this kind of um 
there was more of a cohesive set of texts that girls throughout the empire were reading that mm -hmm. I wasn't, that I think I didn't know about in the beginning. Because mm. I think initially, like, this is part of the, the next question is, like, why did we write this book? Uh, I was just interested in the fact um, that there was so little written about colonial Australian children's literature that, you know, both of us came out of looking at British 19th century girls' print culture, either periodicals or fiction or, or both um, and, and, and other forms as well. And it just seemed like when it came to Australia and, and also New Zealand and Canada um, that very little had been written about it. It just seemed mystifying. It's like I know there are books and, and I know there are um, magazines of sort and school papers but but why why haven't we seen anything much written about them and I think through the course of this long and arduous project we found out why that was because there are a lot of difficulties um with doing something like this <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think um one of the interesting sort of connections to to that is that most of the histories of children's literature tend to be national in their orientation, of course, because that's that that's an easily quantifiable and kind of provides a nice scope and boundary for that kind of research. And and that those kinds of national histories tend to focus on fiction because I guess that fiction is um, it's a bit easier. It's more readily available through archives and libraries and some of the some of the other forms of print culture aren't weren't weren't discussed in a lot of these national histories and then hadn't been kind of considered in an overarching um, national history much less what we were trying to do which was this transnational kind of um, history around girls culture between you know the middle of the 19th century and the middle of the 20th century um, and some of this, the work that we did, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about the archives we use later, but some of the work we did wouldn't have been possible 10 or 20 years ago either. You know, that's that's another factor that, you know, to actually trace how some of these books circulated, you know, how how an Australian book was advertised or promoted in, in Canada, for example, we had to rely on newer resources like Trove, for instance, which is a digitised set of Australian um, early newspapers and um, other kind of periodical sources. And it just would have been virtually impossible to kind of trace how some of these books moved around, um, um, combined with the other work we kind of did in looking at um, more obscure um, children's sort of school publications that, you know, were held in kind of only one archive somewhere. So it, it kind of required quite complicated um, online and physical research to do. So I think that's that's another reason why maybe working across um, nations was very difficult in this instance, um, particularly because children's texts are not necessarily something that everybody thinks is worth collecting or worth digitizing that you know you take that problem that you have when you work on just say British children's culture and then you magnify it because you're moving into three different colonial locations so it, it kind of was a jigsaw puzzle with a few missing pieces to begin with. 
Yeah, absolutely. So should we, I mean, we, we, I think we do want to talk really about what we found, but should we just talk a little bit more about the archives and kind of where we went and how we were able to um, find and what kinds of materials we found and sort of still maybe potentially what some of the gaps still are? Sure. Yeah. I mean, for, for this project, um, like a number of things that I've done on 19th century girlhood, I mean, one side of getting hold of some of these books is simply um, buying secondhand copies online, you know, because um, we we started with, was it, was it maybe two or 300 potential novels, Chris, something like that? Like there, were, there was a whole bunch and like actually finding this magical place where they would all be, you know, that that was a pipe dream, right? So we actually quite innovative, like, and, and not to mention the periodical side, which you can probably speak to a bit more, but we had to actually use a, a number of Kenny strategies from the very traditional to to the, the let's buy this book on a books. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the 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 complexities associated with the fact that we were all located in Australia, but then we're trying to access um, archives that that really were best found in New Zealand and and Canada for the for the non-Australian texts was certainly certainly a challenge. I think we're lucky that in Melbourne we've got a pretty good uh, state library that has a really strong historical children's lit collection. But even then there was still, I mean, I, there was still a need to travel to other libraries in Australia to 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 get the just even the rest of the fiction, much less the 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 children's magazines. Which, as Michelle is saying, it's I just can be really difficult to track down, um, and definitely are are part of the kind of missing archive at this stage. I would say, in terms of the digitization of text that's kind of been going on in the last decade or so. So it was, yeah. As you say, I like your analogy of the 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 missing jigsaw pieces because there were bits, and and you'd go on an archival trip. For example, I went to Toronto to the Toronto Public Library. They've got a really strong collection of children's Canadian children's texts, and you know I had like five days at the Toronto Reference Library, and while I was physically there, I could get an access. I could get access to their digitized um, Canadian newspapers, and I just like what text do I think I'm going to need to look for? And it was this kind of rapid fire let me just see what I can find as as you know as these archival trips are and then but in the end coming back and and putting putting together these different kind of findings from these different places to come up with some sense of how these texts were traveling through the empire was it was exciting but it was challenging too wasn't it yeah yeah I mean and and some things um, just aren't there. Um, like I went to the National Library of New Zealand in Wellington and they, um, you know, had some of these New Zealand children's periodicals, which were amazing because, um, you know, what we found was that there are actually fewer colonial children's periodicals than we thought because a lot of the predominant British ones were mailed out to people in the colonies. So there was no need, you know, really till kind of the early 20th century for 
locally produced periodicals that were kind of few and far between, but th there were these amazing magazines there, but maybe only like a, a snapshot of the run, you know, like three or four. And they, they, you know, you just think, wow, if I could just consult all of these, what treasures might await? But, um, you know, you're talking about a very small country, very small print run. It's not the same as something like, you know, the girls on paper or boys on paper where you might be able to go on eBay and find <laughs> copies for sale or, um, you know, Gale's digitised quite a lot of, of those um, bigger British periodicals as well. We're kind of, um, you know, dealing with things that, you know, we may never find, <laughs> no one may ever find. So we had to kind of, you know, I guess work out, you know, how we could get as much as possible and where we had to draw lines. But even some of the British titles, you know, I had to go to the, the British Library to access some of the things that, spoke about colonial goals because even some of those British titles weren't available in Australia. So logistically, this kind of project um, is it's not the thing to do if you want a fast book. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. Uh, that, yes, it, it, this book had its own challenges and idiosyncrasies, didn't it, in its... In its yeah, we know now why no one else had done it before. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, so let's turn to what we found, uh, and kind of what what is the what kind of contribution do we think that this book is making to the field of you know the literary histories of girls' print culture? Hmm. I think you know it contributes partly to that broader work that's happening, one, in, in literary studies about how texts circulate, because I think we discovered a lot of things about how ideas moved around the empire through print for children in, in ways that haven't been spoken about a lot because of that focus on novels, which um, work in a particular way and, 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 and kind of read independently because we got more into what was happening in magazines, what was happening in school-based publications. So a lot of some of the early print coming out of Australia would be to be read within schools. Um, because we broadened out to these other types um, of reading, um, I think we got a quite different um, view of which to be. And it, it was much more consistent I think than we'd ever imagined because of these processes of circulation that kind of fed back to the imperial center and out of it but also between the three um, colonial locations as well and I think that's something that I didn't know going into this. Yeah, yeah absolutely I think it was it was really I mean some of my more exciting findings were when I was you know, doing some of this digitization work and searching, you know, in the in the Toronto Star or something to see if a particular Australian children's novel was being referenced in the Toronto Star. Just the discovery that occasionally those texts were actually appearing um, in in Canada was kind of this exciting moment where, you know, you could it made much more visible those networks of print culture and exchange that were that were happening. And similarly, we would we discovered Canadian texts, right, that are being promoted to children in, you know, the children's column of, of an Australian kind of weekly magazine. And, and so it was, you know, these, these, it was evidence really that was not 
that was not otherwise visible through at least our, our archival work that that these texts really were traveling, not only, and I think we, we really kind of understood that texts were traveling from Britain to the colonies, but it was pretty exciting also to discover that they were traveling between the colonies themselves, right? So it wasn't just a sort of metropole to the colonies and kind of back and forth that way, but that there was also circulation between the colonies themselves. Yeah, and I think that work you did on the annuals was really interesting in that respect too, like these girls' um, sort of story annuals, the Empire Annual, or um, they, they kind of rebadged them, didn't they, for different colonial locations. So, you know, you have the Canadian Girls um, Annual, which was the same as the Australian Girls Annual, but just with a, a, a changed cover or whatever. I thought that kind of work was quite interesting too, and just seeing the... Um, the way that publishers or, or, or those who are marketing books kind of thought about um, the interchangeability of, of these different girls and, you know, that that was also something that I think was was quite interesting as well as the flow between um, colonial locations, you know, like Canadian books being advertised in New Zealand, for instance. Hmm. Yeah, look, that's a really great point and it probably takes us to the next thing that we should talk about, which is um, do we think, are we arguing, rather, it's not do we think, but are we arguing for a transnational girl? And let's, let's, maybe we can talk a little bit about that and kind of tease out the, the, the implications of, of what we discussed in the book, right, in terms of whether or not there is actually a transnational girlhood or not. Well, <laughs> I think we think there is, right? Like, um, you know, th this was the most startling discovery. And one of the most frustrating things is we tried to write one of the early chapters where I think, um, I don't know, maybe I was charged with starting on this particular chapter um, about home and family, or uh, that topic, and trying to tease out some differences between um, the, the books from the different locations and, and not being able to do that and coming to this sort of scary realisation that the, the books were doing some very similar things. The models of girlhood were very similar. Um, you know, there might be nods to the specifics of, um, you know, snow in Canada or the bush in Australia um, and that there would be differences in how Indigenous girls might be depicted but that's a, a bigger topic we can maybe expand on but this white girlhood um, you know you could insert that girl <laughs> in any of these novels and, and you wouldn't notice the difference um, so that kind of overarching sense of um, the duty that a girl should have to her family, um, the, the way she kind of belonged in her colonial environment. Um, there were just elements that seemed so consistent and so consistent over time, like by the time we got to um, sort of the the 20s and we would talk about modernity, the, the model was also fairly consistent across the three uh, and that's not something we you know, necessarily predicted either. So I don't know, Chris, um, it's, that's kind of how you saw it as well. Yeah. It, it was a shock because we we went in expecting something quite different. Yeah, that's right. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I think we really anticipated that there were going to be really distinct differences between the Canadians and the Australians and the New Zealanders in terms of how they were presenting their their models of girlhood but in fact and and some of the some of the periodical stuff was kind of interesting because 
you know, it, it's a it's a different mode of publication. It's more immediate, and and of course, it's less fictional in a, in a lot of cases, right? There were there's kind of informational articles and opinions and editorials and this kind of thing, and um, there were there occasionally in the in the press there were articles that talk about the differences between, you know, the Australian girl and the British girl, for instance. And, 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 and so that, that was kind of an interesting similarity that, that, that we found across the colonial locations where they were, they were all kind of trying to assert their difference from, from British girlhood, because I think that the, these, these white settler nations were trying to sort of differentiate and separate themselves from kind of mother England by, by asserting their, and the girls in particular, you know, they were, they were fresh and they were healthy and, you know, they were willing to work hard. And this was all part of that kind of colonial spirit, but that those each of each of the countries were kind of producing this kind of similar model of girlhood that was, that was, that was, you know, picking up elements of British girlhood, but also distinct from them, while also seemingly being quite similar uh, across the colonies. But nonetheless, they would still try to assert differences. Uh, there, you know, the the Australian girl was, you know, I don't know, smarter, kinder, better mannered than her New Zealand counterpart, for instance. And um, so there was there. There's a little bit of kind of national jockeying between them, um, while also, but but they were all doing very similar kinds of things about kind of asserting how these girls were um, going to go on to be, you know, the, the, the important mothers and wives um, as they grew up to become young women um, in these colonial locations that, that had very specific demands of their colonial settler um, workforce and and citizens citizenry, and that really is the opposite of you know because my <laughs> PhD work was on British girls um, fiction and and a lot of adventure fiction where girls did all this wild. Um, stuff I expected the colonial girls were going to be really out there with what they were doing you know kind of um, um, mountaineering or shooting kind of wildlife or something you know that, that I expected a bit more of that kind of British adventure fiction um, strand to come into the colonial fiction but it wasn't there you know it was much more domestic there's a few um isolated kind of examples like um Mary Grant Bruce's series um the Nora of Billabong you know she rides a horse and and um has a few kind of physical skills um on the on the farm and in the bush but largely these are like you were saying Chris a little more domestically future wife and mother oriented in ways that you know just weren't what I was picturing because I thought um, maybe because a lot of these fictional examples were being read by British girls as well that you know maybe that adventure side would come through but effectively um, it, it's just not there uh, in the way that you would imagine that you know even with the text that were circulating back um, to Britain that they weren't necessarily presenting colonial girlhood as this wild out there um, you know, life, which which I thought would have been the appeal. But. 
Yeah, but what that what that uncovers, right, is that the texts that are produced in the colonies are actually designed to do that kind of ideological work to produce girls who are going to be kind of the future of the nation, right, as mothers and wives, and that they have this very consistent strategy across the countries um, to to do that same kind of um, ideological work in relation to girlhood, which is which is an interesting and important discovery. So maybe now is the time to just think about the the girls and the girlhood, because you made a mention of race, Michelle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important, um, it's, that's an an important finding in terms of what we uncovered about the representations of girlhood across these three countries. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's awkward because the, the book's and and of course, in in periodical sources, are, are overwhelmingly white. You know, the the question people always ask when you work on nineteenth um, century girls' text is about is often about where are the non-white girls, and often they're they're absent. But those that are present, you know, are very telling. And I think we did. That's probably the area where we did see the greatest types of national difference like New Zealand um, depiction of Maori girlhood um, was was a bit different um, but but retained some of the same strands but you would see more uh, examples of, of Maori girl characters potentially than um, Indigenous Australians for example um, the, the Australian texts I think were the, the most uh, abysmal of, of all and, and probably like the Canadian ones were, were uh, significantly um, better as well. But, um, you know, in an Australian text, you have to go a long way to find an actual Indigenous girl. You can find, um, you know, Indigenous characters maybe, like the kind of stock standard um, male help on the farm sort of figure. But actual Indigenous girls only cropped up in a very, very small number of fictional examples. And even things like the school papers, um, in the state of Victoria, you know, charged with educating um, young people across the whole um, kind of schooling period. We went through thousands of pages to find barely any mention at all um, of indigeneity, let alone a, a girl because you know that's the combination of the three things you know the 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 gender the age and and the race all of these things that um make them um, invisible so um nevertheless you know there, there were significant differences that I think speak to differences in how each of these three nations deals with their um, relationship with Indigenous people today, you could kind of nod and say, oh, yes, I can see that, that how, how different, you know, this New Zealand narrative is emerging as compared with Australia. Um, you know, you can probably speak more to the Canadian um, material, Chris, but that struck me that you could, you could see already in, in this um, body of fiction and um, periodicals how there wasn't quite the same unified stance on Indigenous girlhood, I thought. Yeah, that I think, I mean, it was it was really with our 21st century gaze, looking back on these texts, I mean, it was really disappointing to think about how Indigenous girls were just kind of erased from the record. And 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 so those moments where you did encounter a girl became, you know heightened really in terms of their significance because there just were so few of them. And, and I think, I mean, you're, you're right that, that some of the representations of the Maori girls were, were a, 
more um you could yeah, yeah i mean it's still through contemporary lens problematic but but giving some respect to culture yeah. or yeah. some some sense of you know even that some of these characters might be beautiful for instance um you, you can see a, a different relationship i think or or um there's more of a dismissal in the Australian texts that, um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, I mean, there's no question the Australian texts, I think, were the worst in yeah. terms of kind of promoting the, the Indigenous Australians using this kind of rhetoric of, of the, the dying race, right? So they, they, in that sense, were just never really present as kind of um, characters who, who, who had a future. And, and I think that that, that, motif was much stronger in the Australian mm-hmm. texts than either in the Canadian or the or the New Zealand ones. You should probably mention Claire Bradford who um, had a significant role in that chapter on race given all of her um, very um, well cited and respected work on Australian Indigenous um, representation uh, in children's literature, um, she she spent a lot of time, um, and in the edited collection that we did on colonial girlhood, wrote about these New Zealand texts that represent the the sort of tragic Maori princess mm. figure. So that's a, it's a kind of backhanded. These are beautiful, uh, desirable kind of characters that have this um, mystique about them, but they're they're all kind of doomed to die um, on an individual basis rather than kind of like a whole race thing quite like the Australian narratives I think so um, yeah even even just that one kind of trope or figure was, some, was something that led to some quite interesting um, findings about that particular um, New Zealand attitude. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So look, I think we're getting probably close to the end here. And I'm wondering if we could just reflect a little bit about, well, the, 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 the question of where this research might go or, you know, is there, is there other work to be done in this area, Michelle? <laughs> I think, well, we, we've started brewing something else already on uh, Australian colonial print culture, because although not specifically necessarily only about girls, but one thing we realised through this project is compared with um, the work you know, that people are doing within history, within literary studies on childhood um, in Britain and, and potentially even the United States, um, work on Australia, New Zealand and Canada, it's, it's, it's kind of impossible because of the lack of digital access to many of these texts that are otherwise inaccessible. And in these COVID times where we may not be able to even get to archives physically um, for some time, I, I think there's clearly more work that needs to be done to make these colonial texts accessible because effectively um, with, with scanned copies locked away um, in, in places, um, it's hard for anybody to do anything with them. And I think this project um, that led to this book shows how bringing other types of sources to light, you know, which gives you a different picture because in literary studies we tend to focus on those canonical few books that are deemed important. And, and this um, monograph tried to say, well, actually, you know, there's a whole bunch of magazines, there's a whole bunch of school papers, there's um, a range of things that young people were reading and we need to incorporate them um, 
into that analysis as well. So I think future work um, on these sort of colonial locations needs to think more about going beyond those few, you know, we don't need another paper necessarily on Anne Green Gables, but we maybe need to, to look at what else young people were reading. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the other thing that, that I think is important is that, and one of the real interventions of this book, right, is, is providing some of that historicization about representations of girlhood, because you and I both do quite a bit of work in, in representations of contemporary girls. And uh, I think the, the, the one strength that that comes from doing this kind of archival work is that it uncovers the fact that these contemporary girls haven't emerged out of a vacuum, right? That there are these kind of historical trajectories. Um, so it's, it's, it's exciting to see other work that kind of is, is situating contemporary representations in view of that longer history uh, that I think sometimes scholars tend to think has just kind of emerged in the late 20th, early 21st centuries. Mm -hmm. But in fact, many of our ideas about girlhood, I would argue, um, you know, have their inheritances in, in some of these ideals that have come from, you know, 100, 150 years ago. So I think there's more work to be done there as well. Yeah, I agree with that linking. I mean, I think this is a problem maybe all uh, historians, whether literary, cultural or social, um, can face in sort of contemporary academic culture. Um, I know my institution um, was asking us to nominate research strengths and they had to relate to contemporary life. Um, so we were told we couldn't couldn't put down 19th century studies as a strength because it had no contemporary relevance. And this is a kind of dangerous sort of um, belief, isn't it, in what you're saying, Chris, in that we need to actually draw these links between historical childhood, girlhood, and, and to see how, how what we have today evolved and, and where it came from and what we can learn from that, this idea that the past child has nothing to tell us today. Um, you know, I think any of those uh, uh, people who were involved in SHCY would, 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 would not agree with that kind of belief, but um, I think the onus is on us too to make it, you know, quite clear how um, looking back to past models of childhood is actually very crucial for working through a lot of problems now. Yeah, and that sounds like just an excellent way to end our, our dialogue about our book, Michelle. I think you've concluded it nicely. Uh, so thanks for coming to, you know, coming to our conversation and 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 discussing this this book with me. It was a it was a fun collaboration, even as it was um, challenging at times to figure out how to bring it all together. But I'm I'm quite pleased and proud of what we managed to accomplish. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.